All right, I'm going to have you all stand one more time. We're going to get in Scripture now. Let's all stand one more time, all, all y'all. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we've been in a series called The Language of Faith, and, or, and what we've been doing is we've been looking at a variety of words that help form what we call the Christian faith, words that are really important and significant to following Jesus, that words apart from themselves, if we don't understand how they fit in the biblical context, then we sort of import false ideas, false notions, sometimes even baggage into those words, and then it recreates a different Christianity, a different gospel, really, a different understanding of the gospel. So we've been spending some time unpacking certain words, trying to make sense of this. Today we're going to be looking at the word grace. That's what we're going to look at. So why don't you guys open up your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2. And what we'll do this morning is, uh, again, something different. Um, We're going to have all of you read, but here's, here's how we're going to do this. Um, if, if, if you have an ESV, um, that's typically what I will read from, scripture-wise, um, for no other reason other than I just, I like it, but, and it's just kind of what we, I typically use here. Um, I will have this, uh, the, the verses up on the screen, so if you don't have an ESV, um, you can just follow along up on the screen. We're going to have them up there. So we're going to read out of the book of Titus. It's only four verses, don't worry, it's not super long. And uh, I, I even color coordinate them. So the, the men are going to start this, reading the orange verse, right? And then women, white, and then next slide will be orange, men, and women, white. Does that all make sense? Are you guys okay with that? Try that this morning? We've never done this before. Honestly, I don't think we've ever done this as a church. I know sometimes some churches do this, but we've never done this before. This could be absolute chaos right now, but it's like Jesus chaos. So that, that, that could be a good thing. So on the count of three men, we're going to start off reading uh, that first verse in orange. And then ladies, you guys just jump in right after the men. So I'll start on the count of three. One, two, three men. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give yourself a round of applause. That was beautiful. That was good. That was, that was a little bit of a weak round of applause, but that's, that's cool. Um, I'm going to pray. This is God's word. So I'm going to pray, and then you guys can all sit. We'll jump into scripture. So Jesus, thank you that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, deliverance, giving us the ability to live the life, God, that glorifies and honors you. That's, that, that's according to our truest self, human beings made in the image of God. Also freeing us, enabling to renounce those things, God, in our lives. Those proclivities, those actions, those ideas, those concepts, those false notions, those fears, those anxieties that actually inhibit us from rightly reflecting your glory. So we ask you right now, God, that you would just have your way in our hearts, in the space that we have together here. and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll grab a seat. So we're looking at the word grace. So this is kind of a topical study, a series of studies that we've been looking at. Again, the idea of words and how important they are in terms of forming our understanding. So grace is one of those words that 
I think Christians, especially Protestant Christians, use a lot. And um, I, I think there's always a danger with that because what happens is over-familiarization. We learn a word, we learn an idea, or, and we begin to think we know what grace is, and therefore we kind of press into maybe an idea of grace, but maybe that idea of grace is a false grace. It's not a real grace. Maybe it's a grace that doesn't, it's not derived, or it's not shaped by Scripture. So again, this is one of the reasons why we want to take a look at certain words and see how they match up or stack up against Scripture. So this idea of grace, I, I want to begin just a little bit by, by, by nerding out, just briefly. Is that, is that cool? So we'll, we'll look at a couple things that we've been doing with this little series. I want to look at this word grace real briefly in both the Hebrew and the Greek. I, th- I have a slide for it. I think it's working. Is it working? Yes. Good. There we go. So in the Hebrew, it's actually the Hebrew word chen. It's not chen. Chen. You've got to say it with a ch. So hen, chen. And it's uh, the idea of graciousness, um, and you can see kind of how it's described here. Uh, objectively, it can be described as beauty or favor when someone is in the grace of somebody else, meaning they are in the favor of somebody's eyes. It's the idea of, of being acceptable, being loved or cared for, appreciated. Uh, in the New Testament, that's predominantly written in Greek, it's the word charis. Everybody say charis, charis. You've got to get that Charis, okay? Uh, if you know anybody named, named Chrissa or, or Charis, that, that's literally the Greek word for grace. And again, very similar meaning. This is kind of the, the Old and New Testament versions of that same particular uh, English word that we use for grace. Now, I want to jump back into the Old Testament and just kind of read a little bit of how this word grace appears and how it works its way out. Um, again, it's not, it's not specifically a religious word. Uh, the idea of grace gets kind of brought into a religious context because we're, dis- we're described things like the grace of God comes. So again, that's, that's where it gets brought into more of a religious I- idea, but the word grace does not necessarily have roots or origins in a religious context. So I'll, I'll show you a couple examples of this. So in the book of Genesis chapter 19, I got some passages up here. Genesis 19, verse 19, says uh, Abraham speaking, Now be- behold, now your servant has found grace in your sight, and you have magnified your mercy, which you have shown to me in saving my life. So again, in this little exchange, this little dialogue that's going on between two people, this is not between God and another person, this is two human beings having a conversation, and he describes, your servant has found grace. So again, thinking about how this word grace, this word chen, appears in the original context, uh, what does it typically mean? Obviously, it refers to an idea of favor, that somebody has found favor in the eyes of somebody else, meaning they're, they're, they're accepted. So if you can say, I've had grace upon that person, means you've, you've accepted them. They've been accepted by you. Uh, next slide. Next passage is in the book of Exodus. This is kind of more of a well-known passage. Um, and this, again, this is between Moses and God. So you see the exchange kind of play out here. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, it says this, Moses then said to the Lord, See, uh, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. So this is Moses talking to God. He says, yet you have said to me, I know you by name, uh, and you have found favor in my sight. So here's Moses talking to God. He's like, I'm going to go forward. You're sending me out, but I can't go by myself. I need somebody. And God, by the way, you, you, claim, you claim to me that I have found grace or favor in your sight. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways, that I, may now, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And next slide. It says, and he said, this is God speaking now, my presence 
will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not uh, bring us up from here. Is there another side that goes along with that? Oh, here we go. Yes, it keeps going. Verse 16, it says, now how shall it be, now for how shall it be known that I have found favor, Hen, in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And then the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found Hen, grace in my sight, and, you, and I know you by name. So this little dialogue, this little exchange that's going on between God, Yahweh, and, and Moses is this question over favor. God, do I have favor in, in your sight? How do I know that I have favor in your sight? How do I know that I'm accepted by you? And how do I know if I'm going to be leading this nation of people that are really stiff-necked and hardened and complain a lot, how am I going to know that we're not going to get out in the middle of the wilderness and you're just going to crush us? In other words, you're going to go from pleasure to displeasure, from grace to anger. So you see what's going on here? he's, He's assuming that God's um, moody. Do you know anybody who's moody? Anybody? Like, God's not moody. And apparently this dialogue that's going on is he's wanting to reassure. God, God, are you consistent in your attitude? You claim to have grace. How do I know that you're going to have grace? And then as the story unfolds, um, this is when God says to Moses, I'm going to show you my, my hind parts, my backside. I'm going to show you my glory uh, in or the afterglow. When I, when I leave the room, you're going to see the glory that remains of who I am. And this is God's way of basically saying, Moses, you have grace in my sight. I've demonstrated grace. I've not only spoken it, but I will now also show you and demonstrate to you my glory. Now, you can follow this theme, this idea, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, all the way into the New Testament. What you have in the New Testament is phrases like we just read in the book of Titus. And again, I'll I'll summarize it for you again, just to make the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this leap. This is where Paul the Apostle writing to this guy by the name of Titus, comes on the scene and he says, look, the grace of God has appeared. It's not hidden. It's not veiled. It's not absent. It's not gone. It's not vacated. It's actually stepped into our existence, into our world, into our lives. And this is what Paul is going to begin to unpack and describe. Now, there's a purpose by which God ha- God's grace has come. And what we see, there's just two, I don't know, I got like a, just a two-point, two-point sermon for you guys to unpack and think about. So what we see with regard to God's grace, so again, we're thinking about the concept of grace, not just in a general secular sense, but how does this idea of grace play into the context of the Bible itself? What is grace, at least in the fullest shape of the Bible narrative itself? And the best way I would describe this is just two things. Number one, the grace of God as it's come to us, is number one, a person, and number two, it's a power. This is exactly what Paul describes, and we're going to unpack this. Number one, it's a person. This is what Paul would say in verse 11 of chapter 2 of the book of Titus. He says, the grace of God has appeared. So what Paul's doing is literally pointing to an actual event. We call it the incarnation. Jesus stepping into this world as a babe, but not just stepping into this world as a babe, but growing up as a child, becoming a man, bearing upon himself, literally, the sin of the world, doing something. This is a historical event. So this is not a matter of, like, do I feel God's grace? This is, guys, check this out. Grace is not a matter of whether or not you feel it or not. 
It's historical, actual reality. That preaches right there, by the way. Like, that's really, really good news because most of us, we live our lives with, from, from plateau to valley, trying to understand, does God love me? Am I acceptable in his sight? Does he care about me? How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that God's not moody? How do I know that God's not angry one day and really sweet and happy and tender the next day? How do I know that God is not like all of my other friends? Or like my spouse? Or like my children? Or like my dad? How do I know that God is not like all of these other relationships that, for the most part, are fractured and reflective of sin in humanity? This is what Paul would say, because the grace of God stepped into our world. The book of John says that the Word became flesh. Eugene Peterson's translation says, and moved into the neighborhood. I love that image. It's literally God saying, there's a really bad hood in the universe. It's called Earth. I'm going to move into it. The bad part of town. Because he's not afraid. He doesn't run from the brokenness, the sinfulness, the rebellion, the stiff-neckedness of our lives. He steps into our sin, steps into our brokenness. He doesn't run from our suffering, our grief, our pain, our anxieties. He steps into them. Do you understand this? The reason why, Paul says, because we have grace. It's been a gift given to us. This is the idea. So first of all, we see that it's a person. Secondly, we see is that it's a power. It's a power. Listen to how the verse continues to unpack. It's a power. He describes it this way. Let me read this. Uh, describes it as, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness. The idea of the Holy Spirit, and I want to describe, and I'm going to make a careful distinction, that the idea of power, don't think raw, inanimate power. Don't think a force. Don't think Star Wars. I mean, think Star Wars, but don't think Star Wars in terms of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force like in Star Wars, which has its roots in, in pagan ideology. The Holy Spirit is utterly distinct, and the Holy Spirit is a person. As we would describe as Trinitarians, meaning we believe in one God, represented in three unique, distinct ways, the Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit is not just in a force. The Holy Spirit is the person, the third person, what we call the triune God, who does something. This is what Jesus would say earlier on in his ministry. Uh, again, he goes on to say in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, uh, actually, this is a, a dialogue going on between Peter, and he says, and when they had heard this, the people were asking him, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Uh, and then Peter then said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive, as he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, just in case you're checking up on these things, the word gift that's used there is actually a different a Greek word than the one that's used that we had just read earlier, charis. But it's the same English translation that's there. The idea of gift. The Holy Spirit is given as a gift to God's people. For what purpose? Again, who was the Holy Spirit? Where did the Holy Spirit reside in the mindset, or that, at least in the narrative of Jewish people? The Holy Spirit was this animating power, reality. Again, uppercase P, uppercase F, force, if you want to think about that context. But again, I think as long as you want to refer to the Holy Spirit in those contexts, like a force or power, make sure you understand it's a personal, it's a reality it's a human uh, in terms of human elements, human agency, human abilities, but yet God himself, that he animates, brings life into that which is lifeless, just as in Genesis chapter 1. This is who the Holy Spirit is. Jesus says he will come upon you, 
and you will be given new life. The, the, the presence, the power, the life-giving, the animating reality of God Himself, Yahweh, will reside in you. Not just singular you, but plural you. Right? Many of us, we read the Bible in our personal devotions, daily, quiet time, which is fine. If you do that, you, that's great. If you're not doing that, you should think about incorporating private reading into your daily life. But the reality is, is that the Holy Spirit comes in and He's the presence of God in us as a family. Not just as, as us as individuals, but as a community of God's people. The Holy Spirit resides within us as a church community, as a family, along with other, many other church communities worldwide. But we see as a power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus would say these words. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So Jesus links this idea of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift from God, and power. He does something. The word power that's used there is the Greek word dunamis. We get the English word like dynamite or dynamic, or dynamics from this, this idea that it's a power that comes upon us to enable us to do something. And this is where the rest of the New Testament, you have incredibly gifted and smart guys like Paul the Apostle who are appointed and anointed by God to unpack these things, where they begin to ask these questions. Well, what does it look like? What does it mean to really truly be empowered by the animating presence and reality of God? What will my life look like if God truly is king over all my heart? What does it look like for grace to truly take root in my life and begin to grow fruit in my life? You guys following? How y'all doing? So what's that? What does it look like? This is what Paul is going to go on to say. So at least three things he unpacks for us in this Titus passage. Just take a look at them one by one, verse 11, 12, and 13. Number one, we see that this grace, this gift, this person, this Holy Spirit, when he comes upon us and empowers us, he will empower us, number one, in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, to be delivered. Listen to why he says this again. He says, bringing salvation... Listen to that phrase. What does it look like for the grace of God to come? Maybe you put it this way. You might ask the question, ask yourself, how do I know if I've actually received the grace of God? Number one, it looks like you've been delivered. You've been freed. Freed from what? Delivered from what? Well, again, the New Testament fills in the blanks for these questions. It, you're freed from the enslavement of sin, the power of sin that grips you. I mean, think about this. You're freed from other people's expectations over you. You're freed from feeling like you have to simply say yes to everybody. You realize that there are so many things in this world that enslave us. I mean, we typically think of the most common big E on the eye chart items, like oh, they are addicted to drugs. Well, that might be a reality, but some people, a lot of people might be just as addicted to fear or just as addicted to other people's expectations. Or just as addicted to their stupid cell phones as anything else in this world. Because there's something about these cycles that we find ourselves stuck in, and we don't know how to get out. By definition, what we, I mean, if you want to think about modern psychological terminology to describe enslavement to sin, it's the word addicted. God bless you. It's the word addicted. This idea we have these addictions, we don't know how to break these cycles. And yet what Jesus does when he comes, when the grace of God comes into your life, he frees you from these things, from these cycles, these destructive cycles that are hammering away at your soul, hammering away at your humanity. 
and keeping you roped in, looped into these feedback cycles where you are not free to get out, one of the best questions that you can simply ask is, can you stop what you're doing? Can you stop looking at naked bodies through porn? Can you stop and put your phone down? Can you stop? Can you break from these cycles? Can you pull away from food? Do you have addictions that you cannot stop from? That may, can you stop drinking? Can you put down the beer? Can you walk away from people and parties? Or is there FOMO, fear of missing out? You are always addicted to these cycles. The Holy Spirit comes and frees us so that we can say, give me Jesus and nothing else. He is the sum total of my life. He is my everything. He is my all above and beyond anything else in my life. And my life entirely is given. If you can say that, that's evidence that the grace has broken in. The pennies dropped. The realities begin to take root. That seed has begun to germinate. Now, I need to say a quick word on this because just because it happens doesn't mean that you will live a life free from everything this instant because that's the rest of your Christian life. Until the day you die, you will find that there will be new addictions that get kind of traded out for old ones. All right, you guys follow what I'm saying? So for some of you, you might be like, you, you gave up. God frees you from alcohol addiction, from drug addiction. Now you are addicted to working out, which is far better. All right, by the way, it's great. But you are, you are addicted to something other than that. And again, it might be a better addiction. It's definitely far more socially recognized. But you may be a slave to something new. And at some point, it might actually begin to disrupt and destroy and ruin good, healthy relationships in your life. So you gotta, you got to think about this. And it's the whole rest of your life and the Holy Spirit continues to give brand new, fresh power to free us from these things. So first of all, we see that the Holy Spirit, the grace of God is not only a person, but it's also a power, a power that delivers us. Secondly, is that we also see that grace empowers us not only to be delivered, but also to be trained. To be trained. It's actually an interesting word that he goes on to use here. I think I might have a Serious preaching today. It's awesome. Um, so the word paideia, paideia is, is also a, a word that, it's, it's a word that Paul used here. This is an interesting word. So if you are doing like classical academy or schooling like that, this is a word that you might already be familiar with. This is what Wikipedia describes. That this is a word that Paul says, that the Holy Spirit, God's grace, when it comes, it paideias us. It trains us to do something. What does it train us to do? It describes it this way. In this culture of ancient Greece, the term paideia, referring to the reading and the education, the ideal a member of the polis, which is the community of people, he says it incorporated both practical, subject-based schooling and a focus upon socialization and individuals. And what Paul says, he uses this word. He says this is exactly what the grace of God does in your life. It trains you. It is, by definition, your personal trainer. For what purpose? Well, there's two things at least that are happening that it's training you. And I'm going to have you guys say these words. Next slide. It's training you uh, in these ideas. Number one, mortification. Everybody say mortification. And vivification. Vivification. Just rolls off your lips. Say it. Vivification. All you guys didn't say it. Say it again. There you go. Good job. That's awesome. Good job. So mortification. I told you I'm feisty this morning. So mortification and vivification. So number one. The grace of God trains us to pull away from some things, to say no to some things. Why? Because people that cannot say no are not free. 
followers of Jesus who've had an interaction, encounter with the grace of God, are free. They're free to say no. Here's what he goes on to say as he describes this. That uh, they are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Renounce ungodliness. You realize that there are things in your life, in my life, that we have to renounce. We have to say no to. Because if we don't say no to those things, they will continue to soil and ruin and defile and shrink our souls and shrink our humanity and destroy who God intends for us to be. So there are certain things that we're trained by God's grace to renounce, to mortify. It's the big word there, to mortify, to put to death certain things. But contrary, and contrary to that, we also see that there are things that need to come to life, that spring forth into life. And this is what he goes on to say. And we're also being trained to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. This is what the Holy Spirit, this is what God's grace is doing in your life if you are following and in partnership with God, saying yes to God as opposed to saying no, or being stubborn, or being hard-hearted, or being stiff-necked, or turning your way. But if you are in partnership with God, you're saying yes to God and God's grace. You're receiving what we can also say. You're receiving God's grace. You are not only being delivered and set free from things that will destroy you, but you're also being trained as a follower of Jesus, we call these disciples, to learn how to say no to certain things and to say yes to godliness and all things that pertain to what God is like in our lives. And then finally, I want to look at this and we'll wrap this up, is that we are also being uh, trained or be part of this uh, whole process, this power to, ex- to live with expectant hopefulness or to be expectantly hopeful, if you want to think of it this way. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, this is how he, how he goes on to say this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is that when God's grace is appropriated or received, then what happens, it begins to set our eyes on something that's beyond the immediate next one hour, or two hours, or two days, or even 30 years. We begin to see something bigger, that we are part of a story in which God has disrupted our brokenness, our sinfulness, our proclivities that have betrayed us and promised us everything and yet have deceived us all the way, that we have been brought into a new kingdom, a new way of being human, a new way of finding life. And he describes it as the grace of God. Jesus stepped into our lives and he delivers us, he trains us, he empowers us, he causes us to look ahead to the future of what he describes as the glorious hope of his appearing, that Jesus Christ, even though he came once 2,000 years ago, Paul is saying he's going to come again. And when he comes back into this planet, into this world, he will completely do away with once and for all, all that is evil, all that which is uh, inconsistent or out of the ordinary of his kingdom, anything that is contrary to his kingdom. This is one of the reasons why I would say very clearly is that if your life, if your value systems, if the things that are part of the deepest desires of your heart are things that you are holding on to, harboring, cultivating, and yet those things are in direct contradiction to God's good kingdom, there will come a day when those things will be rid. And if your heart is holding on to those things, when this kingdom comes crushing down, you will come crushing down with it. This is what it means to be freed. But to be able to say, my heart is not bound by these things. My heart is bound by Jesus. He's my king. He's my Lord. He's my love. 
He's the one who has rescued me. Now I can walk away from these things. And I can live in this world that, for the most part, is self-destructing, right? I think that's a good way to describe, right? That's what our world is doing. That's what the evening news is all about. It's another news article about self-destruction happening at the highest levels of our government, at the highest levels of other world governments, at the highest level of Hollywood, at the highest levels of whatever. Self-destruction, because it's out of sync with the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying is that having this grace of God reminds us that we have a future and a hope. So what this does is it frees us that in this present age, when things are tough, when my life is challenged, when I go through what the Bible describes as trials and hardships, fiery furnaces, suffering, pain, loss, I have this ultimate hope that even though I lose everything in this life, I have this hope of the glorious appearing of Jesus that will set this world to right. Do you realize how good news that is? Do you realize that it's that hope? Such good news. Do you realize that it's that hope that sustained thousands, if not hundreds and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus for the past 2,000 years? It's that hope that literally sustains followers of Jesus in closed off countries to the gospel right now today. People that are literally being killed and persecuted for their faith. That's the thing that sustains them. That's the thing, when they wake up in the morning and they're not confident, in the, by the evening they might have their spouse taken away or the kids, kids murdered or they might be tortured. When they recognize going into their day, what do we have hope in? Well, our hope is not in our government that's going to help us. Our hope is not in you know, drinking a four-hour flat white. Our hope is not in being able to thumb through Instagram today. Our hope is in Jesus Christ who promises a future to us that is what it looks like to have grace come to life in a person's heart. The grace of God is not only a person and a power, and I want to finish with this thought because there are problems with grace too. And here's, here's the final two concluding thoughts about the problems. Grace is problematic for us, not because grace is flawed, but grace is this challenge for us because number one, it's shown indiscriminately to everybody including those people you think are undeserving of it. That could be your spouse. It could be your ex-spouse. It could be somebody that has violated you horrifically throughout your life and has left you broken and with deep scars in your heart and your soul. That grace of God is literally shown indiscriminately. That God literally is willing to show, this is one of the reasons that Jesus got in so much trouble because he was hanging out with people that the religious leaders said, A holy person should never hang out with prostitutes. And here's Jesus showing up at a prostitute's house, not to do something funky, but to rehumanize her in a profound way by treating her with dignity and value and respect. This is what grace does. It's problematic for us. The second reason, and this is, again, by the way, if you've ever read the book of Jonah, this is, this is the theme throughout the book of Jonah, that Jonah is a recipient of God's grace. He's described as a prophet belonging to the people of Israel. But he's a guy that through him, God's going to say, I want you to speak forth to this nation of enemies that I want to free them. And Jonah's mad because he speaks, and then they repent and now he's, he's so mad, he's actually mad at God. Why? Because God's gracious, even to enemies. 
people that we would look at and say they deserve nothing except destruction and evil and bad to come upon them. And God says, that might be a person to whom I'm going to show grace. Secondly, is it's a problem for us because it's frequently distorted and misunderstood. How? See, in our modern American culture, we live our lives more in the workplace than in family. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are from broken families? Raise your hand really high. I'm one. Um, so that's quite a bit. Not quite half, but quite a bit. So what that means is that for many of us, I mean, for many of you who did not grow up in a broken family, maybe there were obviously dysfunctionalities or brokennesses that were even within there. But many of us in our modern era, we do not grow up living, in, living our lives in the context of a family. We live our lives majority of our time in the context of the workplace, which means how to earn the favor of the boss or the bigwigs or the people of power is you work really, really hard. And you see what happens when that becomes the main paideia, the main trainer, personal trainer in your life, you learn a system of favor that's built upon works. Do you understand this? So when you walk into a church on a Sunday morning or walk into a small group throughout the week and they begin to talk about the grace of God, there's a confusion that's happening right now. Because in your mind, you haven't skipped, you haven't jumped from the workplace environment into a different environment, which is called the family of God, in which God says, I love you because I love you. It's not because you've done anything to earn it. Even though you may have been a battle boy or battle girl throughout this week, I still love you because I love you. That grace, if received, has the power of rearranging, reorienting the sum total of our lives, training us to become people that renounce things that are lethal, destructive to our soul, but then to cling to or to hold on to or to exacerbate certain things in our lives that in a good way that pronounce life and godliness and goodness in our lives. This is what the grace of God does. So the question that we've got to think about before we finish is, what's your experience with grace? Because Scripture repeatedly tells us this grace of God is something to be entered into, to be experienced. I just talked about, but to step into it, to step into this grace that no matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how deep your stains, your scars, your wounding, your defilement is or was or will be in the future, you are loved by this God. Because it's not based upon how God feels about you. It's based upon something that God has done for you. God stepped into this world and bore our sin, our shame, our guilt, and instead gave us life. So, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this grace of God. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, or you are a follower of Jesus, and yet maybe you've wandered, and maybe you've allowed your mind to become sort of a battleground of false misinformation about the grace of God. And so therefore, your walk with God has been directly the consequence of that. So you find yourself going up and really far down, all based upon how you feel that morning or that evening or how you feel after a sin or betrayal or whatnot. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this grace by trusting what God has done. And then we'll respond by uh, giving our tithes and our offerings as we typically do earlier on, we're going to do this now as an act of worship, as a part of our worship closing uh, time of singing and response. 
So how about we all stand, and then I will pray, and the worship team will come on up and lead us into a song. And as, uh, as we're preparing our hearts to respond, and we'll also come to the table and eat the bread and drink the cup and be reminded of God's love that happened that night just before he was betrayed and crucified, as he took the bread and the cup and he gives it to his disciples, he says, do this and remember me. Remember my love. Remember my grace that I've demonstrated to you. Receive that today. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes. If you're here this morning right now and you want to receive that grace, maybe for the first time, maybe as a person that has had a misunderstanding, misinformation about God's grace, and God's spoken to you this morning, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to just say a prayer out loud, and you can just repeat it after me in your own heart. You don't have to say it out loud, and then we'll respond. So if that's you, just repeat after me. Jesus, thank you for your incredible love that in spite of how broken or defiled or lost I feel, you've not only said that you love me, but you've also demonstrated your love for me. And right now, God, I ask that you would help me to receive it. Help me to turn from false understandings about who you are, to turn from sin, actions and ideas that have left me broken and help me to turn to you, Jesus, in faith and trust and childlike confidence in who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for your love.